Plants are terrible sources of protein. You often have to take in a bigger quantity, which is a bigger caloric load. One 25 gram scoop of whey is gonna have about, you know, two and a half grams of leucine, but you'll need about 40 grams, let's say of soy protein or rice protein or pea protein in order to actually get that two and a half grams of leucine. Stephanie, welcome to the DFS podcast. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so pumped to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. We There's been a lot that has happened in your life since the last time we spoke. Oh my gosh. The last time we spoke, we were huddled over a chiropractic table in my clinic in, uh, in King West in Toronto. Yeah. A lot, lots has happened since then. So yeah, maybe still give a little intro into, into how your paths crossed and then we'll, and then we'll learn all about what's been going on. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we met years ago. Uh, I reached out to you after actually seeing you speak at the very first Archangel, (laughs) (laughs) which seems like a very long time ago. Uh, Yeah. And so, like we said, we had an original podcast, which we will definitely link up because it's always interesting to see the progression of sort of what you were talking about. And I saw some of the themes in actually your most recent book, which we're going to talk about, uh, in what we chatted about originally. So a lot of that still is kind of one of the, one of the main areas that you're focusing on, obviously with women's health. Uh, so I'm so excited to dive into this. Uh, first of all, what have you been up to over the last four years? (laughs) (laughs) Buckle in. No, I'm, uh, so from the, uh, so the last time we chatted, you were in the clinic. Uh, I made a, an executive decision, uh, probably in 2018, but we ended up uh, executing in, in 2019 to actually close the clinic itself, which was a really big, hard decision for me to do. I'd been in practice at that point, like 15 or 16 years, amazing patients, you know, comfortable life, like, you know, uh, like good money and all that stuff. Um, but I was really, uh, I could no longer ignore the, the yearning that I had to, to be able to extend my reach and to, and to reach a bigger, uh, audience. Um, and you know, in a geographical location, like in a brick and mortar practice, of course we had, I felt like we had made a really great dent in the community that we were in the King West community in Toronto. Um, but it was time for me to, um, to close that down. I felt like I climbed to the top of that ladder, so to speak, and, you know, time to, to start anew. So we closed the clinic in April of 2019 and then took some time off to sort of just figure out what it is I really wanted to do. I started a podcast, uh, called the better, uh, better with Dr. Stephanie. Um, which is something I always wanted to do is like one of my sort of things that I'll always put on the back burner. I'm like too busy, too busy, too busy. One day, one day started the podcast. And then I also, I feel like I have like three, at least three books knocking around in me. So I was like, well, let me just try and download one of them. Let me just try to get one of them out. And then I've been writing this book, uh, since call it, um, you know, fall of 2019 and then have just in, you know, in the last month really just finished off, you know, and I I sent you an advanced copy of it and, you know, still syntax, like there's still grammar stuff in there, uh, which I'm, you know, sometimes I get really mean emails from people telling me that I can't spell, but it's not one of my strengths. Like I, you know, it's just not, we all know our strengths. Yeah. yeah, We all know our strengths. So my whole through line is I just want to help people become more of who they already are. I want people to step into their power, to step into to their prowess and, um, and to just like 
you know, just take back what is rightfully theirs, which is the, the inherent right to express abundant health. So that's sort of what, what I'm hoping to, uh, to do when I step into the ring with this book. <laughs> what was the, what was the process like of taking some time off after being like running a clinic is exceptionally difficult. Um, there's, yeah. there's a lot going on continuously. So how, how was that initial period? Oh my gosh. I was a mess to be honest, because it was, you're so used to having 400 things that you need to be attending to your patients, your, you know, the workup on the patients, the marketing, the sales, the employees, the growth of the clinic, the strategy, the, all, all those things. And to close that down, there was still some paperwork and some follow through that I had with patients. I wanted to make sure that everyone had a new doctor that they were comfortable with, that all the files were transferred, all, all that stuff. Um, so there was some sort of residual stuff that lasted for, you know, a month or two following the closure of the clinic, but it was, um, I, I almost didn't know what to do with myself, you know? So as someone who likes to pr be productive, I feel, and for, and I still struggle with this very honestly, like, you know, I often feel like my productivity is a measure of my worth, right? So the more productive I am, the more, you know, worthy I am. And so to not have a lot of things to do to be able to relax, to be able to spend time with my children without watching the clock, without, you know, having some sort of deadline. I was a little bit like a, you know, sort of like a baby giraffe, in, you know, like with the big legs, not really kind of knowing what to do with myself. So it took a little bit of time to unwind from that. And, um, and then decided that I was going to start the podcast. And so then it's the strategy around the podcast and who you want to be on the podcast and what do you want the theme to be? And so, so and then I sort of got my, you know, next little baby, my next little project to, uh, to, to sink my teeth into. Yeah. The, the, the idea of working on ideas is a different, is a difficult concept because you feel, you feel like you've done nothing at the end of the day, because right. tangibly there's not a product. Right. Yeah. Strategy and thinking time are very undervalued. I think that we always want to do, we want to see the end product, but in order to do that really well, you have to spend time thinking you have to, you know, in your, in your calendar week, you may have to, you know, I know my partner Giovanni does this very well. He will spend very early hours in the morning. Cause that's when he's, you know, most awake. He set, has this like 5am to 7am, just strategy, just thinking time. Right. So by the time I make my way downstairs, the kids are coming downstairs like he's already had so much preparation he's and he has you know some sort of template for what he wants to do so I you know kudos to him I'm not quite as good as that I'm I'm the homeschooling mom and the podcaster and trying to launch a book right now so not so much strategy time but uh, when I was writing I certainly had a lot of time to uh, to think about it so the book is called the Betty diet and Adrian and I were talking about the title mm -hmm. um and I was like I think it's from Betty Betty Boop <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, once I started reading the book, I was like, it's, it's not that connection, but Adrian's like, what's a Betty? So mm -hmm. where did you come up with this name? What is a Betty? <laughs> I love that. So the book, so uh, I'll, the origin story behind the word Betty is the, is the podcast. So the podcast name is better, uh, with Dr. Stephanie. So we started calling the fans of the better podcast are Bettys, like the, you know, the people who love the better podcast are our Bettys. Okay. And 
Yeah. So, and it just was really sticky. So we started seeing reviews come in for the podcast. Like I'm a Betty. I love it. You're the queen Betty. And I'm, I want to be a Betty. And so I was like, oh, that's so interesting. So we, I looked up in the uh, urban dictionary. Actually, I can't take credit for this. Giovanni, my, my partner was like, I wonder what, if there's like any definition for this. So in urban dictionary, um, I'm paraphrasing, but it says something like a Betty is like a modern day triple threat. She is intelligent. She's kind. She's quirky. She's loving. She's beautiful on the inside and the outside. She's someone who is a lifelong learner, you know, and I was like, oh, that's exactly, you know, the archetype of a woman that I want to get to know and I want to get to help. So, you know, Betty is the name that stuck. And then the book, we named it the Betty body. So to name it after our, um, after our, our fans. So it's, you know, people might say, well, your name is Stephanie. And it's like, yeah, but it would have been so boring to name it after me. Like I'm, you know, I think it's, it's so much more interesting to say, okay, so there's no like defined size, defined weight, defined, you know, dress size or jean size that you have to get into. But this is about you coming into your own skin and becoming a Betty and just loving who you are for where you are right now and for setting goals for yourself for where you want to go. And that's sort of in the subtitle, right? It's like the intuitive eating, the balanced hormones, the sex, the transformative sex. So using some of those things to self-actualize and to become more of who you are. You already are a Betty. It's just a matter of like taking off, taking off the, you know, the layers of the onion, so to speak. Yeah, I love I love it. Once I got into that beginning of what a Betty was with the Urban Dictionary, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. I, I pictured Betty Boop because she's dark haired and curvy yeah. and like yeah. like a just, sassy. she's a little sassy. And I was like, oh yeah, I could I could see why people want to be Bettys, but this is just a whole no- new level of of what a Betty is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do like that Urban Dictionary is such an authority. It's yes. Like, yeah, <laughs> so sure. true. They've been elevated to this, to this uh, godlike status when it comes to definitions. (laughs) They are referenced in the book, just like all the other studies. I have like 234 studies in the book and also Urban Dictionary to round it out. So they are, (laughs) they are an authority in, in my mind. And I also, I also will also say that the word Betty also just is not, it speaks to my vintage heart in a way, right? There's like the Betty Davis and the Betty White and the, you know, so I just, I love that as well. And I've been told that, um, roller skaters also used to be called Betty's like the women that would do the, the, yeah. uh, is it roller skating or roller, roller derby? derby. Yeah. Roller derby. That's it. Yeah. They used to be also called Betty's. And I was like, Oh, those are like badasses. I'm totally down with being called a Betty if that's what we're referring to as well. So it means many things, but it's all at the end of the day, it's all like, how can we be the best version of ourselves? That's awesome. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I love that name. Uh, there, there is a pivotal point in your, realization of, you know, being in a different environment in Italy that kind of sparked a lot of this conversation of doing some deep dive data into your own health and your body. Um, Can you talk a little bit about just like where this, you know, concept of making a plan just for women and addressing women came from for you? Sure. Yeah. So I spent... Um, as you know, I mean, I've known you for many years, but I, I've spent um, probably decades, several decades, um, 
where my menstrual cycle was just the bane of my existence. It was, I always felt like it was a punishment, my pun, my monthly punishment for being a woman. Like I had the angry joints and the swelling and the poor sleep and the moodiness and the irritability and everything hurt and it was crampy and my back and my knees could predict, you know, when it was going to rain. Like I had, I had all of these things happen every month and I was like, this just sucks. And I used to just want to, I used to just pretend like want to pretend like I was a, a little man. Like I would say, okay, so like I see, you know, Mark Sisson or I see like all these other men that I love and admire um, in the online space and I'm going to follow exactly what they do. Of course, that was often met with disastrous <laughs> results, right? Like I would try to white knuckle my way through whatever, you know, diet it was. And the same is actually true for the ketogenic diet. So, you know, six, seven years ago now, maybe closer to six years ago, I started playing around with the ketogenic diet, really excited about the benefits that it had on brain health and brain metabolism and the potential to change our physiology and moving us into this glycolytic to lipolytic state. Like it's like all this stuff that, you know, um, I would get really, I was really excited about, and I started running this program in the clinic. And even though, even then in those early days, I was running it, like it was always ketosis all the time. And while it was, while that was good for a short amount of time, I started noticing both in myself and some of the female patients that, uh, were going through this program, they'd say, you know, and it was especially, it was also very true when it was a woman doing it with her husband, she would say, I don't know what it is. Like we started the same day we're doing we're following your recipes we're following all the things and like my husband has lost 10 pounds in two weeks and I've lost two. And I think that this is completely unfair. <laughs> and I'm angry. And, and I'm, exactly. And I'm not cheating. And like, I'm, I'm doing everything he's doing. Like what's up. So I was still at that time, like ignoring the fact that I was in fact a woman. Um, and I was like, well, you just gotta, you know, you just gotta dive down deeper. You just gotta like, you know, do the keto, right. This, you know, and I, I completely divorced. I was not really taking into account the, the nuances in female physiology. And it really, as you said, it wasn't really until I went to, I took a family trip, um, to Italy one summer, uh, it had followed, um, um, you know, a difficult divorce with my ex-husband. We had, you know, young children is, and this is, a, if anyone has out there has gone through uh, a separation, um, especially with young kids, like it's heartbreaking. It's hard. You know, I was crying all the time. You know, I was trying to figure, find my way to do what's right for, you know, my ex-husband, for my kids and for me. And we had also, and there was that plus the clinic that you, that we actually interviewed in, Prior to that, my my previous clinic had actually burned down, so I had this huge fire, that, yeah. right? And I, we might have even talked about that in the in the first session in, the, in our first interview. But um, so there was these two really big like professional and personal losses uh, that I had, and I was just I was exhausted. So we went to Italy. I was like, okay, we're gonna you know spend spend a couple of weeks in in the sunshine and, you know, I'm going to go into the Italian sea and I'm going to have my cappuccinos and all the things. And towards the end of the, of the vacation, um, I got my period, which normally would have been the worst thing on the planet. Like I would be holed up in my hotel room, eye mask on, medicated, trying to silence, you know, the symptoms, but because I was doing 
I was out in the sun. I was doing a lot of low level movement. So we'd go and walk in the morning to get our cappuccino. And then we'd go and walk after a meal. And then we'd walk to the beach, we'd play on the beach and we'd sleep. And we, so all of these sort of foundational basics, um, on my vacation that my menstrual, like the, the, that period was actually beautiful. It was graceful. It was easy. It sort of came and then it went. And at first I was like, well, it's it. It's because everything's better in Italy. Like, yeah. <laughs> like everything's the better. The explanation, <laughs> right? Like the cap cappuccinos are better. You go to some little, you know, side stand and it's like the best sandwich you've ever had in your life. And you're like, what is going on in this country? It's the best. But I also um, really held on to this idea that even though the environment had changed, it was my body that actually made this happen. So can I take this home and replicate the internal environment? And, you know, maybe it's not Italy at home, but can I, can I live in an environment and have an external environment that supports my physiology? So from there, I started experimenting on myself, on my women who were in the program that were in that ketogenic program. I started saying like, can we play a little bit with, you know, let's look at your menstrual cycle. Let's look at your, let's look at some subjective and objective measurements. Let's look at the DAS score, the, the uh, depression, anxiety, and stress uh, score. Let's look at all these different parameters and let's start manipulating your macronutrients to match up with your menstrual cycle. And I was doing this on myself as well. And and what we found was over the course of six or seven months, women who were able to initially get, so if we did, you know, at least one cycle of therapeutic ketosis, where they were in ketosis for about 28 days, but then after that were in and out of it. So they were cycling the keto. Um, we were able to lose weight keep it off and then improve some of the parameters around our menstrual cycle. So the PMS that I was describing to you before, the angry joints, the tender breasts, the sleep disturbances, the irritability, the mood, all of these things, you know, the digestive issues, all of these things improved over time. So I started saying, okay, well, if it's, if it's the food, if we can change the food, what else can we change? What else can we change in terms of exercise? How can we change the way that we move in accordance with our menstrual cycle? How can we change the supplementation that we take in accordance? So I was like, okay, what are all the other cycles? What are all the other things that we do the same all the time that now we can begin to match the ever-changing uh, hormonal milieu that women go through in their reproductive years? Yeah, which I think is such an important conversation. And I love that you've mentioned all your clinical, you know, studies with this, because there's like, as you mentioned in your book, there's really not enough research on women and women who aren't in these small populations of maybe obese or, you know, they're, they're, the research is really lacking. And I find that in sports nutrition, especially most of it is, most of the research is done on men and uh, it's very difficult to, to come to these conclusions for women until you're actually, you know, paying attention and we are all different. So, you know, it's going to be a different scenario, but there are these themes. Absolutely. And I think that when you're thinking about research, I think it's starting to get better, but often in the past, your menstrual cycle was a confounding variable. It was like, well, we, we don't know what, what, what it is. So we have to exclude you from the test. So, um, and I don't think that it was done, um, 
you know, I don't think it was done with malicious intent. I think that, you know, when you look at a research, when you look at a randomized control trial, people are trying to control for all of the variables so that they can manipulate one little variable and then see what effect that has on the population. But of course, as you know, when we think about what constitutes evidence-based practice, part of that is what comes from the literature, but the other part of it is the clinical, like the, the, the real life scenario. So you can, you know, no one lives in a controlled environment with only one variable being manipulated. There are often, you know, kids at home and, you know, maybe they have a nightmare one night and then, you know, maybe you have some PMS or maybe there's something going on. You have an elder, a parent who's sick, or there's all these different things that are always happening that have an effect on our physiology. So for me, evidence-based medicine is not simply the randomized controlled trial, although of course, that's, you know, a good body. Uh, that's a, it's a good point in, in a certain direction, but we also need to marry that with clinical, um, evidence and clinical experience. And of course what the patient wants, right? Those are sort of the three overlying like Venn diagram, like the literature, the clinical experience, and then the goals and the dreams of the patient. And are you, are you still practicing and working with clients at all? So I'm not, I am officially retired from chiropractic uh, practice. So I do not practice chiropractic in the, you know, in the way that it's defined, which is communicating a diagnosis and, um, you know, adjusting the body and, and all of that. I do some health coaching with women, a few, a few women uh, every quarter, um, just sort of one-on-one. -on -one. And then I run um, with the, with the book coming out, I'm also launching a membership for women. So, um, it's called hello Betty. <laughs> so continuing on the Betty theme, and it's going to be really talking about what we've been talking about today. So, so I've sort of defined four parameters of health for a woman. So fuel, which is like the fasting and the nutrition, the fitness, uh, Sylvie, which I know you're an expert on, and I'd actually like to invite you into the, into the membership to talk to our, to talk to our women. And then we also talk about the female psyche, you know, and some of the different, like, you know, the stress response for women, how it's different, how, what it's like to grow up in a largely patriarchal society and some of the messages that we've taken on as women. And then we also talk about the, the, the marrying of the divine masculine and, and feminine energies. Wow. There's so much I want to dig into there. Um, I did want to, you mentioned it actually just right now, which was my, my next uh, point was on stress, stress with women and how it's different. I think one of the big things that, you know, we take on is these balancing of, you know, work and having to, you know, take on a lot of maybe the house duties and these responsibilities that we feel as women, uh, to really, you know, take responsibility for. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's difficult for us as, as women to kind of, you know, understand that it's okay to have a specific stress response that's, you know, uh, that's ours as, as women and to own it, like, which I love that you mentioned in the, in the book. Yeah. So what you're referring to is the tendon befriend, right? So we, when we think about the stress response, we often think of, you know, the proverbial tiger that's chasing us and we have the fight flight freeze, right? So this is like the sympathetic system. And while females do have that, there's also a layering for women. Like I, I write in the book, like women don't start wars, right? What we, what we do is we clean our makeup brushes. Like when we feel stressed, we rearrange the furniture in the house. We, you know, clean I the love junk. I the Portuguese grandmother. Yeah. Adrian's Portuguese. So I was, he's, 
Okay, so I thought that this was like a Portuguese thing. So before I learned about tendon befriend, my every you know son every second Sunday we'd go to my Portuguese grandmother's uh, on my on my so I'm Portuguese and Lebanese. So on my Portuguese side, what a what a combo that is. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we'd go over for dinner and like literally every time we'd go over like her little biblical, you know, the little, uh, our lady of Fatima, like all the little things were all, they were all different. They were all changed. And right. she would change where the chair is. She changed how the, you know, where the little tchotchkes are. And I was like, okay, so this is like just my grandmother's weird quirk. And then I thought it was and then when I was in school, I would do the same thing. Like right before I had to sit down and study for my exams, I would clean my makeup brushes. I would, you know, make my bed. I would clean my environment. I'm like, well, I guess it's just from my vovo, just from my grandmother. <laughs> and then I learned about tendon befriend and I'm like, oh, okay. So it's a, what it is. It's, it's basically for women where it's a cry for oxytocin. So we will tend to our environment or we'll tend to our children or we'll reach out to friends, right? So we will talk to a girlfriend, ladies night, you know, like we go out for like, this is, and I say this often in a sort of tongue in cheek way that, you know, ladies night is actually really neurologically healthy for women. We need that connection, that bonding. Um, and that's how we actually metabolize some of the stress that we're feeling. So there is a distinction there. And I, I brought that up in the book because I wanted people to understand that they're not crazy. Like I was like, okay, it's just a quirk. It's a weird thing that I have, but it's, it's, I think when you understand some of your patterns, whether that's your hormonal fluctuations through the month, whether it's your stress response, you're better able to attune to and attend to your body and what it is that you need in that moment. So yeah, that's, that's um, a great point. And I, I love bringing things like that up because when women hear that they're like oh i'm not crazy then like i do that too like i do clean my makeup brushes when i have a presentation due tomorrow you know it's it's not like they don't feel like there's something wrong with them and i think a lot of times women we jump to that or it's like well the diet didn't work for me there must it must not be the diet it must be me something's wrong with me that's why it didn't work right yeah and uh, you know what i love about that is that you know, just again, pointing out those differences, you mentioned it, even in our cycle, there's these difference in our brain chemistry and what's going on. And I, I love, you know, thinking about that because I've, I've dove into this a bit and definitely not as much as you have in terms of female health, because I work mainly with males, but um, I just think it's so interesting at different times in your cycle, even your your brain chemistry changes and your you know need to you know do presentations and times of the month where you maybe should be doing um, you know more of the reflection and uh, and organizing and that type of thing of of your life. Can you talk a little bit about those types of changes um, in the cycle? Absolutely, yeah. So um, there's a couple of different times in the cycle where we really want to be paying attention to our mood. Uh, we want to be paying attention to the type of workouts that we're doing. And then in the book, I talk about every single week, how we can begin to change our training, our eating and our supplementation. So a couple of different ones that I'll pull out just as a highlight um, for your listeners for the, and we'll, we'll start at right before your period. Cause a lot of women can identify with feeling that sluggishness or feeling irritable or not having great sleep. There, there's sort of this time uh, right before you get your period where everything is wrong. Like your nail polish is wrong. Your husband can't do anything right. 
your career sucks. Like everything is wrong. And you're like, Oh God, like I hate everything. And I hate everyone. And this is called a negativity bias. And it is a consequence of having your progesterone. So what happens in the second half of your cycle is we have this hormone called progesterone, pro gestation, pro pregnancy hormone. And right before you get your period, she just takes a nosedive. So she's sort of there in the last two weeks of the cycle. And then a couple of days before you get your period, she drops. And what happens there is of course, progesterone is feeding the endometrial lining. When progesterone drops, drops, we see the lining gets, you know, ischemic, which means that there's no more oxygen getting there. It dies. And then we have the shedding, which of course is the onset of your bleed week. But right before the endometrial lining dies and it starts shedding, this progesterone level drops and that has um, effects on our cognition. So we call this like a negativity bias where we are looking around at everything and nothing is making sense. Everything is wrong. And I actually think it's quite a useful time. You know, we often will laugh about it and be like, oh, I totally get that. Right. Cause I I've, I've been there and I'm like, oh my God, my nail, like I didn't even choose the right nail polish today. Like it's not even the right, like I can't even do that. But what that's forcing us to do is to evaluate our life. So right before we shed, right before we let go, literally letting go of an, the endometrial lining, letting go of an organ, we are looking around and seeing what else we need to let go of. Do we need to let go of things that are not important? As you mentioned before, you know, with the lockdown, many things, you know, have to fall by the wayside. We have to shed the things that are no longer as important. The same is true right before you get your period. Am I in the right job? Am I following the career that I'm supposed to be following? Is this relationship working for me? If not, how can I change it, right? We often talk about, and then sort of moving into the bleed week, you know, I often, um, I'll credit Kate Northrup with this. She was on the podcast and she mentioned this. I was like, oh God, this is so true. She was saying, you know, a lot of times, uh, men will say like, okay, I'll have to think about it. Like, I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. Right. If there's something that they're trying to process or, you know, come to a decision on for women, we should bleed on it. So we should wait until we have that bleed week for us to think, okay, is this something that I want to take on? So as I'm letting go, is this something that I want to let into my space? So that's sort of a one example that I talk about in the book, this negativity bias, and then this idea of letting go, making more space. Um, another um, thing that I like to talk about is the idea of when you should be podcasting and giving presentations. Uh, and this is really around when we see this sort of prolonged and sustained elevation of estrogen in the luteal cycle. So when we look at estrogen, she has in the first half of the, in the first half of your cycle, it's called your follicular phase, which is named so because it's all about developing the follicle, we have this really meteoric rise of estrogen right before you ovulate, right before you release an egg. And then she comes back down again. And then her second lift, her second rise, almost like a roller coaster. So her second lift is sort of sustained and prolonged in that luteal phase. And when we think about estrogen's effect on the brain, as you were mentioning, it's a trophic hormone, right? So it is a growth, it's an anabolic hormone. So it is going to marinate in our verbal, the verbal centers in our brain. We are going to be much more articulate in that 
during that time of the month. So that is a great time for a podcast, a great time for a presentation. It's a great time to ask for a raise, you know, it's a gr- because you are going to be much more verbally uh, fluent and fluid in your words, your vernacular, you're going to have more access to words. So it's, it's a, it's a really great time for a woman uh, to be able to schedule those things. Now, obviously, you know, you can't always do that, but it's nice to be aware that when you are in that phase, that this is a really great time to try and schedule out some of these more, um, uh, some of, some of these more uh, activities where you are going to be more verbal in nature. What about a training perspective? I know you mentioned training. I think that a lot of our listeners on here oh, yeah. are coaches and a lot of them are probably mm-hmm. male as well as female. And a lot of them have never thought about this ever. <laughs> um, so for, for those people working with female clients, yeah. uh, I guess, yeah. I mean, the first thing would be to ask and make sure they're comfortable talking about it, but then how would they complement uh, that knowledge with uh, training? I'm so glad you asked this. And I was, I forgot to actually like answer that in the last question. So thank you for bringing this up. So one of the things I get really excited about is how we can alter our exercise through our menstrual cycle. So one of the things there are, there are sort of different hormonal environments every single week, but there's a really important week for, if you're a trainer that's listening to this, if you're a woman or a man and you, and you work with women, there are, certain times of the month where steady state cardio is much better and a preferred option to high intensity interval training. And I know that when I say that, I am going to have some people stiffening up because HIIT training is like, it's like the, it's like the avocado toast of, of training right now. It's like everybody, you know, it's like the darling of, uh, of cardio. But when we look at a woman's hormonal environment, I just mentioned, you know, the, that meteoric rise of estrogen. So when we see estrogen in that follicular phase, rising. So towards the end of week one into uh, the, the middle of week two, estrogen's concentration will go anywhere from five picograms per deciliter. I've seen it as high as 600 uh, picograms per deciliter. There's a huge, like this is orders of magnitude uh, higher. And when we think about the estrogenergic effects that it has on our tendons and ligaments, so estrogen makes our ligaments more lax, makes them more loosey-goosey. Okay. And it also makes our tendons stiffer. So if you are going to be doing explosive movements, if you are going to be doing burst training, so, you know, that could be on your Peloton and you're just like riding, you know, pedal to the metal or you're sprinting or you're doing burpees or whatever, when your ligaments are lax, this is ripe. This is a ripe time for injury. So I actually like to stay away from HIIT training in that, you know, end of week one through to ovulation time. And instead, I like women to lift heavy. And when I say heavy, I mean heavy AF, like heavy, heavy, like five to seven reps we're talking about because the tendon is stiffer. So now you have, you can actually increase the moment. You can increase the moment arm that you are in. So if you're lifting a heavier weight, it is going to impart, the muscle is going to be able to impart that force to a stiffer tendon onto the bone, and it's going to be able to move it with greater force. So you're you're able to elicit these larger moment arms uh, with a stiffer tendon. So I love in that week two for a woman to lift heavy, heavy. So like five to seven reps is sort of a, a guideline that I give for women when you're thinking about like maximum, like that's how heavy it should be that you cannot do more than seven to eight reps uh, of that particular exercise. And often that requires spotting, um, of course, and that may be a little challenging to do 
you know, when there's no gyms that are open, um, but you can do, uh, there are ways to get around that. So I love, um, I love for that. That's a particular time where I want women to be more aware of their hormonal environment. So like steady state cardio is really great where you are, you know, sort of in that zone two training. You're like, you're, you're not, you're sort of still in your glycogen depleting. You're still taking most of your stuff from your fat and a little, maybe a little bit from your glycogen. Um, so that's a, that's a great thing to consider for women. Um, when a woman is in her, on her period. So when she is bleeding, um, we have almost all of the hormones are on vacation. Like estrogen's sort of taking a vacation, progesterone's not there. Uh, testosterone is sort of steady state. So I like a moderate, sort of moderate weights here. So anywhere between eight in the book, I talk about it like eight to 10, you know, 12, if you want, it can go eight to 12 reps where the last three repetitions are quite difficult for you to, um, to handle. And then kind of jumping into the second half of the cycle, you know, that last week, a lot of women feel very inflamed. They feel like slower, you know, so this is a nice time for you to either have a, like to take some recovery days or to lighten up the weight, but to increase the repetitions that you're doing. So you're still allowing for that myokine release when you are contracting the muscle, but you're not, you're not, it's not as heavy. It's not as laborious. So it's a lighter weight. You're just doing more reps. And I think that there's also, you know, something to be said about recovery. I mean, there's, that's where all your gains happen. Like you want gains, you know, I always make this joke, like you want gains with a Z, you know, you want gains, like you gotta, you gotta back off of the gym because all your, your muscles grow when you're not in the gym. Like a lot of people conflate, you know, working out hard and never taking recovery with being a good training protocol. And of course, I mean, I'm you know preaching to the choir here, but like your recovery is so important when we're thinking about going hard again next week. And if you've, if you're training for three weeks, like you've earned it, like you've earned a couple of days off. Right. Yeah. I think everyone falls into the, uh, in the 65% trap where you just, you just, you've trained so many days in a row that you can only train at 65%. So you don't yeah. feel like you need to go recover. It's like, like it's 90 or zero, like right. pick, pick one of the two. Right. Um, so, so I do think, I do think that people end up in, in that situation, but this, this is great information um, for, for coaches out there. It really is. How, how should they, how should they ask? What's the, What's, what's the question here? If they're a male strength coach trying to, trying to find out some details. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's some, I mean, there definitely has to be some rapport, right? You can't be like, Hey, I'm Jake. Tell me about your period. You know, like you can't, it has to, there has to be some trust that's developed between, um, you know, the, the trainer and, and the client, I would work on really just showing your client that you are interested in her gains and we can talk and you maybe want to start talking about, you know, so I know that as a woman, you are in your reproductive years, that there's going to be different hormonal environments for you through the month. Are you comfortable with me changing your routine to match up with your cycle? And I would give her the option to be like, I don't want to talk to you about that (laughs) Or, or yes, please. I would love to know more. Yeah. And I think that just comes with, like you said, the, the appropriate conversation and, you know, it's going to help me as a coach and get, getting the more information that I can, um, and understanding that, you know, you aren't a small man, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, I know you've mentioned several times that there's, there's definitely, 
yeah, a lot of work that can be done in, in just differentiating these protocols. Um, so let's talk nutrition. Um, so we talked about, you know, obviously the most optimal time for, for women to focus on heavy weight training, gaining muscle mass. I know you talk a lot about protein in particular, leucine, which I, as a strength coach and sports nutritionist is I'm always very interested to talk about. Um, but I do want to talk about, you know, ketogenic diet for women. There's a lot of, um, you know, myths out there about do's and don'ts and just kind of, well, as we've seen, and as you mentioned, there's, there's such a difference in the ketogenic diet over the years and the information that's come out, um, and also the quality. And one thing I really want to tout you on is talking about resistance starch, which I really want to get into that because I loved, love seeing that in the book because yeah, it's so, so important to talk about those details. Yes. So I, and thank you for bringing that up. So I think that I am maybe part of the minority where I actually don't think, so I used to be like men are little women, you know, like women are little men. Um, I am, I have completely changed my mind on that now. So I do not think that a woman should be in ketosis all the time. I think that we can cycle in and out of it safely. Um, and one of the reasons, um, you know, if someone's like, well, why shouldn't I ever, why shouldn't I be in ketosis all the time? You know, when we think about our ovaries, when we think about our reproductive system, even if, you know, when we think about the mitochondria, which of course we, you know, people talk about this as like the battery packs of the cells. They're like the things that make the energy. And of course that's true. They make ATP um, in aerobic and anaerobic environments, but that's not the only thing that they do. They are potent signals for the entire body on the state of the environment. So your mitochondria are constantly evaluating whether or not there's enough nutrients, whether there's a famine, can I get pregnant if you're a woman, and in the ovaries, even if I just were to tell you the amount of, so the amount of mitochondria that a female, that a, that a ovary ovarian uh, cell has is 100,000. Now, if you compare that to your liver, your liver, a hepatocyte is going to have about 2000. Your, your heart, a myocyte is going to have about 5,000, right? Your brain like 15,000, right? So your ovaries have a hundred thousand. So you can, they are absolutely the eyes. They are the eyes and ears of your body without you, you know, without using the actual, your actual eyes and ears, they are constantly sensing the environment. So if you are constantly as a woman depleting your carbohydrates and you are depleting your protein, what is your, your ovaries are like, well, I can't, this is not a safe environment for me to get pregnant whether or not you want a baby is it like that's a different you know story but your your in your biology your reproductive biology is such that every single month your ovaries are going to be sensing whether or not this is a safe environment for me to build out and have a home for a potential fertilized egg so i do not believe that a woman should be in ketosis all the time and i think that it is important for when a woman is thinking about doing a ketogenic diet, that she does it from a place of, as you mentioned, the resistant starches and building her plate with a lot of greens. So when I talk about building a plate for a woman, when you sort of look, if you were to sort of look down like a bird's eye view on your plate, you should see a bed of, you know, uh, the brassica family, there should be like Swiss chard and bok choy. Maybe there's broccoli and maybe there's arugula and there's all these different things. You have protein that's about the size of your palm. So about, you know, call it about the size of your palm as like a, an appropriate size. 
Mark Hyman t- uh, talks about it as a, uh, you know, if you were to ever have fries and you like sort of squeeze the ketchup on the side, you know, it's, it's about the same size as you would squeeze the ketchup. Like it should be like, he calls it a condom meat, right? So like the meat should be about the size. I, I thought that was really clever. So I'll, yeah. I'll credit, I'll credit uh, Dr. Hyman there. Uh, so it should be about the size of your palm. And then the fat should be the fill and people sort of conflate, you know, the density, like the nutrient density of fat with quantity. So we often think, well, you know, if Stephanie's telling me I need to eat 70% fat. That means that my plate should have 70% fat. And of course we know that that's not true. Like one tablespoon of olive oil is going to be, you know, orders of magnitude more. It's like 120 calories. It's like nine kilocalories per gram versus if we were to look at, you know, a tablespoon of honey or something, you know, that's a carbohydrate, which is going to clock in at like four kilocalories, uh, four kilocalories per, um, per gram. So that nerdy stuff all aside. Um, (laughs) So I love for a woman to alternate between a ketogenic week where she's restricting her carbohydrates to a week where she's higher in protein, as you mentioned. So I like to bring her from like a typical ketogenic breakdown. I like to follow is like a 70% fat, 20% protein, 10% carbohydrate. A higher protein week might be, you know, 40, 40, 20, like 40% fat, 40% protein, 20% carbs, or it could be 50% fat, 40% protein, uh, 10% carbohydrates. And what we're doing there is we are pairing um, a higher protein intake, hopefully with um, a heavier training. So we talked about that week two when like estrogen is really high and the tendons are stiff and you can, you can lift heavier. You can pair that mechanical stress that you're doing in the gym with a higher protein intake in the kitchen. And what that's going to do is, as you said, it's going to drive muscle protein synthesis, particularly if you are using animal proteins, whey protein as your source. Um, I have found, and, and you can do it, you can do it as a vegetarian as well. I just, I, 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 I mean, this is maybe a different podcast, but there's, there's, there's so much more complexity that comes with a woman who's not having animal products. She tends to be B12 deficient in order to get the amount of leucine that you were mentioning that two to two and a half grams of leucine to drive MPS, you know, she has to take in much more of the vegetarian protein plants are terrible sources of protein. Like, I don't care who you like. And high of carbs as well. So you have to, you know consider that as well. (laughs) Right. So you are often going to be, you often have to take in a bigger quantity, which is a bigger caloric load, the calories, as you mentioned, and in order to drive that MPS, you know, I've done a couple of comparative, like I talk about in the book a little bit, like one 25 gram scoop of whey is going to have about, you know, two and a half grams of leucine, but you'll need about 40 grams, let's say of soy protein or rice protein or pea protein in order to actually get that two and a half grams of leucine. So already you've gone from 25 grams of the whey to 40 grams of the soy or the pea protein. I mean, that's like a 40, that's a 40% increase in your calories. So that's something to to consider as well, especially for women who are thinking about weight loss. So, um, but I digress. I know people can get angry at that, but it's just... It is a polarizing topic. There's few topics in nutrition as polarizing as whether or not you decide to eat dead animals. Yes. Yeah. It's very, uh, yeah. And, and I think, like you said, it, it really depends on the individual and, and like breaking it down. And I mean, I've even seen, obviously the keto diet can be done on, uh, on plants. Yeah. Um, yeah. but like every plant-based person, it, it, 
takes a lot of education and planning. And I always say that you have to, you know, constant, and it does for people who eat meat as well. But like you said, it's easier to get those amounts that you need, Mm -hmm. um, where you have to be very strategic with it on a plant-based diet. I agree. And, you know, for the most part, when someone decides to be vegetarian or vegan, like the, the, the ethical reasons, like they're sound, right? Like they're, you know, I agree with them on not like 97%, like the way that most conventional animals are, you know, treated and killed, like their lives are horrendous. Like they're completely right. Um, so I do think that there does need to be a ref, you know, some sort of, you know, a reformation of the way that we raise our animals. Um, but like you said, it's a science, like you have to know how to combine your proteins, making sure that you're getting enough of your amino acids. And, you know, even, even then we see, I often see B12 issues. Yeah. When we run labs and stuff, but, um, I I digress. What was I talking about? Protein, the protein week. Yes. (laughs) So high protein. And then, and then you repeat that, right? So then, you know, the week three, you will come back to a ketogenic diet and then we bring in resistant starches. That's where we were. So the resistant starches piece is so important for women because I have seen this. I don't know how many, like a woman will start a keto diet and she's good for the first two weeks. And then week three, she's like, I just have these cravings. I just need carbs. And then I'm like, okay, have more fat bombs, like have more fat, you know? And then at some point she's like, I don't care how much fat I have. I just need a pizza. Like I just need some pasta. Right. And what, what's happening there is her, the microbiota from her large intestine are sending a distress signal to her brain. So her, the microbiome Um, there's a subset of that population that needs carbohydrates. And when they start dying off, they will start sending distress signals. And that can lead to these erratic cravings, um, which is why I recommend in that third, sorry, in that second cycle of the keto. So we're in like week three now, you start incorporating resistant starches. And the reason for that is um, if, if never, if you've never heard of what a resistant starch, uh, if the listeners never heard of what a resistant starch is, it's basically a starch that resists digestion. So it's like a carb, um, that your small intestine cannot break down. And so it moves undigested into the large intestine where it serves as a, a food source for the microbiota there. So they'll kind of chow down on that, chow down on that. So now they have their carbs, right? So your cravings, like that distress signal goes away. And then if you're trying to get into ketosis, of course, this is like by feeding those microbiota, like that, that microbiota, they're also going to give you a present, which is a short chain fatty acid known as butyrate. And for women who experience those PMS, like the, the, you know, the sleep disturbances, the irritability, the digestive issues, butyrate is going to specifically help with your beauty sleep. It helps you get a better quality of sleep. So it's been shown to improve uh, different phases of your sleep. And then for your digestion, what we've seen butyrate do is it helps seal up the hyperpermeability um, of the of the intestinal lining. So that's often referred to as leaky gut. So if you have like a leaky gut type of um, presentation where you're kind of distended and bloated and gassy after, after meals, um, having butyrate, endogenously sourced butyrate is going to really help with the repair, like the reparation um, of, of that intestinal lining. I love it. Um, last Last thing I wanted to touch on because it's a huge uh, area you're known for and you covered a lot in the book is fasting for women. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I, I've had a lot of questions, tried some different methods myself. Um, but yeah, can you just, you mentioned a lot of different types of fasting in the book. Um, but yeah, can you talk about maybe some of the myths and things that, um, are, yeah, I guess misrepresented. Yeah. Misrepresented in the world of fasting for women. (laughs) Yeah. And it's very, it's such a good question because this is maybe one of the most common questions I get, I get asked. And it's about if I'm a woman, you know, I see all these benefits to fasting. We see like the autophagy and we see the brain clarity and we see the reproductive, you know, markers go up. And if you are a woman who wants like a piece of that, like how do you do it without destroying your hormonal environment and your moods and your neurotransmitters and all those things? Because as I, as we've been talking about, you know, you're, as a woman, you are exquisitely sensitive to nutrient depletion. Your ovaries are always kind of checking things out. Like they always want to know, do I have enough food? Can we sustain a pregnancy? And if they determine that you cannot because you're fasting, you're doing water fasts all the time or dry fasting all the time, your your ovaries are going to send a distress signal and shut down your reproductive system. So with that all said, I think that for a woman, and this is particularly for the type A personality <laughs> women that are listening, myself included, uh, we wanna we wanna just be a little gentler with fasting uh, as as females for the reasons that I just mentioned because we want to honor our mitochondria, we want to honor our mitochondrial lineage, and we want to you know maintain the integrity of our reproductive system, but also. If you are constantly stressing, so fasting is is a tool, right? It's a hormetic stress. It's a type of stress. So short-term gain, you know, short-term pain, long-term gain kind of thing. But if you're always doing it, you know, and you're pairing that with always doing HIIT training, your, your body's going to be like, okay, I'm always running from a tiger and there's no food, right? So I have to, (laughs) perfect, right? It's like, shut the boat down, like shut her down. So um, I really like to take a much gentler approach uh, for females in fasting. So I talk about all the different sort of levers that you can pull uh, as a, like this, it's like the duration, the type, the frequency of fasting in the book. But as a general rule for women, I like that. And depending of course on her hormonal sort of presentation, I generally like longer um, fast eating windows and shorter fasting windows than I would if I was counseling a man. So a guy, we can, we can take the food away. We can do it for several days at a time. And we see his, we see his fertility mark. Like we see his, you know, the quality of his sperm, the, you know, the, the size and the shape of the sperm improve his energy improves his testosterone levels spike, like all these good things happen for men. And the opposite is true for women. So we will see our ovaries shrink. We will see our uh, sleep disturbance um, get worse. And I've seen this, you know, we've seen, I, I talk about a couple of studies that were done um, on, on rodents and the differences when we, you know, were, there was two sort of groups, uh, one, we had caloric restricted them for 20, like a 20% caloric restriction. The other was a 40% caloric restriction and the difference between the men and the women were astounding. So, like I said, the ovaries were shrinking. They weren't able to sleep. They became emancipated. They weren't able to figure out, like they put them through the mazes and they weren't able to figure these things out. So there's this derangement that happens. And of course, I know we're not rodents, right? You can't extrapolate one-to-one for a human, but I've seen it also in clinical practice where if you fast too aggressively, a woman will be like, I can't sleep. 
I, I don't know what it is, but I can't, I can't get to sleep. And there's this stress response that's happening in the background. That's what's, that's what's happening. It's like, well, if, if there's no food here, let me stay up for a longer period of time so I can forage a greater perimeter so that I can potentially find food. So for women, 12, 12, like a 12 hour fast, 12 hour eating window, like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., really easy to do all the time. Sometimes we'll also do like a 14, 10, so 14 hour fast, 10 hour eating window. So that might be, you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., 7 a.m. to, you know, 5 p.m., like something where it's very easy for you to do every single day and it's not too big of a stress, but you're still getting all those metabolic benefits. Like you're seeing the insulin come down, you're seeing the growth hormone go up, you're seeing all these different things, but you're not stressing out the mitochondria, you're not stressing out the reproductive system such that your, your, your ovaries decide that this is not a safe environment. Yeah. I love that. I use a similar pro cause I played around with it, even tried, you know, longer fast, that type of thing. And I found that either 14, 10 or 12 and 12 work beautifully, depending on, you know, what's going on from a stress perspective, because yes, yes. I think that's one thing that people really don't understand about a lot of these popular, you know, diets and protocols is that, you know, a lot of them like cal severe calorie restriction for a long time and fasting is stress, as you mentioned. And so our bodies are constantly having to adapt and deal with those stressors. So uh, I love that you, you know, mentioned that we do have to have a different approach because when Adrian does it versus when I do it, very different. It's very different. <laughs> and I'll tell you the week before my period, there's no, like 12, 12 sometimes doesn't even happen. It's just like, uh, it doesn't matter. Like I need to eat uh, more I mean, calories this week. Like I'm, and, and, and I just like, I've just learned to sort of cut the energetic cords, right? It's like, I'm just going to let this go. There's no guilt. There's no shame. I'm honoring my biology and it's not like I'm failing. That's another thing that I think comes up for a lot of women. We have so much guilt and so much shame. We feel like we're failing, but we're, we're just extra, <laughs> you know, it's like, we're like the guacamole. We're just going to be extra. And in order <laughs> to just, it's just like honor that, like, you know, you are a queen, just think about it as you are a queen and you have, you know, some extra, extra needs. Love it. Uh, okay. Well, we're almost out of time, but we do want to touch on one major area, which is supplements, um, for women. And you went through the different phases in the book, but, um, yeah, could you just touch on, you know, some of the big rock supplements, um, or maybe, maybe your personal yeah. supplement regime would be a, a good way to go about this. What do you, what are you yeah. big on for yourself personally? So like my eating and my training, it sort of ebbs and flows through my cycle. But I would say that some of the constants that I like to recommend for most, most women are going to be a magnesium supplement. Uh, as you know, magnesium is involved in like 324 reactions in the body. It's like everything, right? <laughs> so if you are, if you are someone who um, finds that you have chocolate cravings or you have these cravings, or even if it takes you a long time to recover from a, an intense weight training workout, you may be depleted in magnesium. And often for women, it's like you're depleted until proven otherwise. Like most women, because we are shedding that endometrial lining, and of course your body throws in an exorbitant amount of magnesium in there, you always have to make sure that you're replenishing that. So magnesium is something um, that I talk about in the book. Um, I also think vitamin D3, particularly for people who do not live near the equator. And honestly, I've had labs back from people in Florida that don't have appropriate levels of vitamin D. So D3 levels also very important, tends to be uh, sort of a, a phenomenon 
that we see more uh, prominently, the further away from the equator that you are, you do have to prioritize uh, your vitamin D that you get in the summer, like in the sunshine, but also through the winter months to be able to supplement with that. And I love the D3 to be paired with a K2. Um, so we talk about that in the book. Collagen is another one that I love. Um, this is for you know, my, you know, my tradition, you know, for the skin, for That's you know. what everyone associates with, but so many benefits. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, as a chiropractor, I feel like this is also very important when we think about the health and integrity of our, jo- of our, of our bones and our joints um, over the course of time, we want to make sure that we are having, you know, full range of motion, that we have the discs that are intact and collagen is going to be helping with that. So it's like a flexibility, mobility, um, sort of longevity play, but yes, you know, skin, hair, and nails, ladies, for sure. It uh, does that as well. And, you know, we see collagen like decrease as we age. So there's a, there's a requirement for there, for there to be some supplementation there, I think, uh, particularly in, uh, as we move through perimenopause. So we got magnesium, D3, we got collagen, omega-3 would be the other, other one that I'd love to recommend partially because, you know, a lot of us who think we're eating healthy, you know, anytime you eat like any protein bar, like you're getting, it's usually like an omega-6 fat, especially, you know, we think about nuts, nut butters, you know, there's like, they oxidize, they're polyunsaturated. So we, we have these sort of health foods, I'm using air quotes, if you're listening to this on audio, um, we have these health foods that we think are good for us, but they're actually increasing our inflammatory um, uh, pathways. And we are getting more of the six, the omega sixes. So I think it's also a requirement for most women to be supplementing with an omega three um, supplement, uh, supplement as well. I love it. I have a just follow-up question about magnesium. There's so many different types, um, which (laughs) is it a bisglycinate that you typically recommend? Yes. That's the most readily, like that's the most bioavailable. Um, I often, um, I'm going to take this from Dr. Carrie Jones. She was on the podcast and she, Oh, I love her. Yeah. yeah, She's great. (laughs) She, she talked about magnesium as like, you know, when you send out a wedding invitation or like a party invitation and it's like, you know, Sylvie plus one, right? Like magnesium always has the plus one. It's like, there's magnesium magnesium citrate, magnesium glycinate. There's always like a different last name, you know? So um, I love uh, bisglycinate because I find it's just like bioavailable, easy to digest, doesn't really cause a lot of the, you know, the the digestive upset that can come with citrate. Um, So yeah, my my preferred is is, uh, glycinate. Awesome. Any other big rock supplements you would, um, you just love or, or maybe you're researching right now and looking further into. I'm, I'm kind of playing with biotin right now. So, um, biotin is often touted for, you know, like your hair benefits. Again, it's like all of like, you know, the way it sells is with vanity. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's also been shown to be quite a nice, uh, it helps with insulin, uh, sensitivity and insulin dysregulation. Uh, the other one that I will also recommend, especially for women who are a little overweight is, is, uh, is berberine, or they have a bit more of that metabolic, uh, syndrome presentation. So berberine 1500 milligrams, uh, divided thrice state, like into three, uh, daily doses of 500 milligrams uh, really does has been shown to actually mimic metformin, which is a very popular type two diabetes, type two diabetes medication. So it helps with 
uh, bringing the glucose into um, the cell. So I love, I love berberine as well. So those are, I don't personally uh, use berberine, but I know around the holidays I do. So I will say yeah. when I those know green cookies be, or whatever, exactly. <laughs> there's going to be cheesecake <laughs> and I'm going to take I, my berberine is going to be uh, in my purse. So uh, I definitely use berberine around the holidays, but I'm playing around with biotin. I want to see if I'm noticing any any difference. And typically with supplements, at least myself, I will, when I'm using it consistently in sort of a cyclical nature, I'll, I give myself about six to nine months before I can kind of determine whether or not there's like something, something significant there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people, where's the podcast available? Uh, first and foremost, we'll get anywhere, that anywhere. iTunes, Google, Spotify. Yeah. Anywhere you listen to the pods, anywhere you listen to this podcast, you can find and it's mine. called better. Better with Dr. Stephanie. That's correct. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, the website, your website. You can go to hellobetty.club. So H-E-L-L-O-B-E-T-T-Y.club. I love it. Awesome. And then, and then the book, give us some, some more details in the book, uh, release date, uh, location, all of that. Yeah. Coming out February 16th and you can get it on Amazon. You know, if you're in Canada, this will be .ca in the us.com, you know, wherever you're, you're hailing from, it'll be available in your country. But if you don't find it, you can go to bettybodybook.com and we will have some alternate retailers that will, um, in your country that will be able to, will you'll be able to find it. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It was great to catch up with you all these years later and see how your amazing work has come to fruition in this book. And I'm, yeah, I'm so excited about it. I think it's great. I will definitely be passing it on. So thank you so much for your time. And it was so wonderful to chat with you. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. 